Hey true crime guys and gals, I'm Rashad, host of Blood and Firewater, and before we get into tonight's case, I would like to play a promo from my friend Chantel and her podcast, Lady Justice, a true crime podcast. As an avid true crime podcast listener, I was hooked from the first episode, and I know you will be too. Hello my lovelies, my name is Chantel and I'm the host over at Lady Justice Podcast. Lady Justice is a weekly true crime podcast that takes a look at fascinating cases, both past and present. So far, we've taken a look at cases such as the Sunderland Decapitation, a wife eaten by the cat, and most recently, Book of Skin and the Cursed Skull. There are so many more cases that we've yet to delve into like the upcoming episodes, Incest and Murder, and The Killing of a Ghost. So why not come join me on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Blood and Firewater, a true crime, comedy discussion type podcast. We shoot tequila and chase it with a case of murder. Just as a disclaimer, this podcast contains mature content not suitable for all ages. So listener discretion is advised. Live. That was really awesome. You saw Journey Live. Yep. With uh, Cheap Trick and what was the other one? Heart. Heart. Yep. That's a band? Yeah, Barracuda. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well, hand me that, Jack Daniels. Okay. Welcome to Blood and Firewater. It's me and Lauren again. Hey, welcome back. Guess who's back? This episode is uh, the story of Rachel Mullenix. I gave you like a, a rundown. Yeah, you did. Um, first and foremost, we have some new reviews. Like, So I don't think I've introduced you to how if someone leaves a review on iTunes, right. I'll shout them out on the show. Oh, that's cool. So we do have a couple new reviews on iTunes. Ooh, I'm excited. Let's hear it. This one comes from How JJ Rolls. Great name. <laughs> yeah. The is. title is Interesting Cases. Rashad is an excellent storyteller, and the banter back and forth with Brandy's is a perfect amount of entertainment without making me feel like a third wheel. Winky face emoji. <laughs> the cases they have covered so far have been interesting, and I've learned something new with each story. 104 Windows. Keep it up, guys. I look forward to hearing more. So that was great. Thank you, How JJ Rolls. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this one comes from After the Snap Pod. Um, it's a it's a friend pod of Twitter. Um, okay. I asked them to look listen to my show, leave a review, tell me what they think. Okay. And they said, "Keeping up with the Joneses." Have you ever heard that expression before? Yes, I have. After the pod says, "This is like listening to my brother and me talking about anything." The hosts are both knowledgeable and entertaining. They deliver with a chemistry that one could only have with a sibling. Love it. So you kind of you kind of get it. Oh, I do. And I think that's it as far as new new reviews. If you would also like to join the fabulous group of people who've left us iTunes reviews, all you got to do is push that purple button on your phone, go to Blood and Firewater Pod, and leave a review. Write something, and we'll shout you out on the show. I appreciate everybody who's done it so far. I never thought that I would have this type of thing going on. Yeah, so no like kidding. it kind of turn around and look back at how you were doing as a podcast and be like, 
Wow, this is actually kind of good. Actually, my biggest question is, like, what made you want to do the podcast in the beginning? Like, what made you and Brandy be like, all right, I feel like doing this? Well, as, a out, uh, as an outlet, I mean, um, we you can only watch so many documentaries. For example, let's say you're watching whatever it is that you like to watch. And, like, let's, let's say it's The Bachelor, for instance. Okay. You may not watch, like, it's, we're don't. just using that as an example. You you find yourself sometimes talking to the TV. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Same thing with true crime documentaries, shows, shit like that. Yeah. You know when the narrator's like, "The killer left three fingerprints and blood in the kitchen," and you're just sitting there like, "This stupid motherfucker <laughs> yeah. left three finger like he didn't leave anything else in the house and left three we, fingerprints, yeah. and now he's in jail for nine hundred eighty-two years." Like. It was a, a way to um, be able to talk about it mm-hmm. and also it be healthy because, like, I felt like if it was a too serious of a podcast, like, it would just be a huge downer. And it, right. would, it, yeah, would, be, it would be basically watching a documentary without being able to see it. Now, don't get me wrong. I've listened to podcasts who, who have that serious... Shit going yeah. on, and they're great when I'm at work or you know out doing shit. But when I'm at home, I'm not going to listen to a podcast that's dead ass serious about everything right. they're talking about because I could just watch it on TV. Yep, that's true. Now with a podcast where the 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 hosts have a personality, you know it it brings an element of conversation to hearing something that you're still so interested in. So like hearing it from a different perspective or point of view from someone else makes you think differently. Like with Scott Peterson, it took listening to some really good podcasts about how they thought Scott Peterson wasn't guilty. Scott Peterson killed his wife on Christmas. Well, he, he maybe (laughs) he's in prison for killing his wife on Christmas Eve or whatever. And um, it took listening to podcasts who cast a shadow of doubt on the fact that he may actually have done it. Right. So listening to those type of podcasts instead of one that's just going to tell you the story. Right. Is more entertaining to me. So anyway. So we did the the reviews. Yes, we did. If you want to get in touch with us, um, our Instagram page is Blood and Firewater Podcast at, nope. So if you want to get in touch with us, uh, my Instagram handle is Blood and Firewater Podcast, Twitter at BFW Pod Squad, and we also have a Patreon. I think the link is in the bio on Instagram. If it's not, just shoot over to Patreon, type in Blood and Firewater Podcast, and we should pop up. There's a free episode there. The first episode's on us. First okay. shot's on the house. Nice. And then, you know, after that, we'll we'll kind of just dive further into more opinionated cases. Like, if, like, like I was saying before, like, if you hard body thought Scott Peterson was innocent, was, yeah. then, like, that's the type of episodes we'll have on the Patreon. With all ceremonies aside, I think it's time to take these shots. Lauren is drinking Blackheart 
Puerto Rican rum? No, it's just spice rum. Spice rum. Blackheart spice rum. I have Jack Daniels myself. So we're going to uh, turn these up. Oh, Jackie D. <laughs> you don't know what rum does to me, man. Like, I no, I don't, rum. apparently. Because it's like you had like a a moment just yeah, now. Yeah, I did. It was just, it's like warm and fuzzy. Like, it just reminisces all the times I didn't used to drink <laughs> spiced rum. <laughs> so, we, I titled this episode Runner Tuesday. It's going to come up a little bit later in the show. Okay. You'll be like, uh... he did it. <laughs> <laughs> he said the thing. Uh, the story is of Rachel Molinix. Yep. You know, I'm not even going to kind of trail into it. I'm just going to jump right in. I think you should. So Head first, do it. Rachel Scarlett Molinix was born in 1989 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Rachel was the only child to Barbara and Bruce Molinix, but Rachel had a stepbrother named Alex. So let's acknowledge his, his, his presence. Hey, Alex. Before the age of 10, Rachel and Alex had a stable, normal childhood. After 10... Barbara and Bruce began to fight. Marital quarreling is unavoidable at times. Not a huge deal. But what every parent should try to do, regardless of the situation, is not fight physically or verbally in front of your children. I agree. Children are like emotional thermometers. They watch the parents, read their emotions, and analyze their actions to see how safe they are in the family. And when fights turn destructive, it can have long-lasting effects on the child. See, I agree on that because my parents, like, they would fight all the time. Right. And, like, we would just go to our room. Now, like, being older, like, we, in, in my, like, personal life, like, when Gunn and I, like, have a argument, we take it somewhere else. You have Where to. the kids aren't involved because, like, they mimic that stuff. And my biggest thing is I don't like to fight in general, so I try to, like, be, like, understanding and I don't want to yell because, like, yelling gets you nowhere. Well, this is what happened exactly in this situation. Rachel and her brother, Alex, began to see the parents fall to the hands of alcoholism. Verbally, just tear each other apart. Yep. It's, it's the worst, worst type of fighting because it's non-physical. You know what I mean? It could, it's just verbal. You, yeah, it, you could literally tear a kid apart. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, tear your children apart by, you know... Saying words that you don't actually mean, but or, you do in that moment. Or the kid could be in a situation where, like, turntables, mom would talk shit about dad or whoever may be involved in the situation yeah. and say, this person's a piece of shit. And you grew up the rest of your life thinking... He's well, a piece of he's shit. He's a piece of shit. Yeah. So, that... Two can be definitely can relate because like when my parents they got a divorce like my mom would put my dad or my mom would talk so much crap about my dad but my dad never like spoke bad about my mom and she always thought that we put my dad on this like highest like pedestal but we really didn't it's just like we wanted to find out for ourselves like yeah. why my let mom me was figure out why yeah she's a exactly piece of shit. just because your opinion like you think that your opinion is. Oh, Legit. dude, I remember thinking that so early on. I was like, I know Billy's a piece of shit, but let me figure it. Let me figure this out. Right, yeah. Barbara, shortly after all the the verbal hands have been thrown, short she uh, des- decides to start an extramarital affair. The affair didn't go the distance to Barbara, so she began to drink even heavier, causing an even greater rift in the family dynamic. 
When Rachel turned 13, Bruce and Barbara divorced. Bruce moved to California, and Barbara and Rachel moved to Florida. I'm assuming Alex was, like, old enough to just... Yeah, go on his own. Yeah, he's gone. Yeah. The mother and daughter team attempted to fix their strained relationship, but to no avail. In 2002, Rachel called the police on Barbara for allegedly biting her, leaving very clear teeth marks in her arm. No charges were filed, and soon after, the family had another 911 call in response to an aggravated assault. Have you ever had the cops called to your house? I'll tell you right now, I haven't. There's never have I ever had the cop like not I'm not saying to your childhood home. I'm saying to your current relationship now. Oh no, no, no. no. It's it's best no. just don't involve the, the law. No. Okay. Cause you usually nine times out of ten can settle the dispute because it no one's getting hit. There might no be no one's some, throwing knives yeah, or getting the gun there's, out. There's, <laughs> there's usually some name calling and you can defuse the situation. My personal choice way to defuse the situation, go to sleep. It's yep, really hard to fight with somebody who's asleep. Yep. It might piss the other person off even more. Right. If in fact the situation is that they've been drinking and this, that, and the other. They'll call you every name but the mom the one your mama gave you. Yep. But they're not Hopefully they won't stab you or something or oh, shoot gosh. you. Oh gosh, in your sleep? In your sleep? Yeah. Oh jeez. That'd rem- be one way to go. I remember when uh I heard a story about somebody got hit with a frying pan, like not a frying pan but a skillet. Oh like, shit. Those, those heavy are heavy. Yeah. yeah. In his sleep. Yeah. Dude, he's sleeping. Like he's leave him alone. <laughs> yeah, he's really sleeping yeah. now. <laughs> so, September 13th, 2004 when police arrived an, an injured Barbara was crying hysterically and appeared nervous and uncooperative. Police did get her to admit that Rachel had attacked her with a knife, but when Rachel was questioned, she stated that after the verbal altercation, she left the scene and no charges were filed for this incident either. The verbal and mental assaults didn't stop there, but they didn't start there either. Before moving to Florida, according to Rachel, her mother would say things to her just just like very demeaning things like you're never amount to anything never good you're a piece enough. of shit yeah. you're never good enough mm-hmm. you know i don't i don't i can't condone that that type of shit but it happens i get it yeah no there there's a lot of people out there like that go through that on a day-to-day basis like if you think about it like there's people that you meet that are so insecure with themselves like when you say oh you look pretty today do do i really look pretty today like you know what i'm saying because like their parents or i hate when people say good morning you don't mean it really you really don't mean dude it. i totally mean it i'm a morning person like when i like when i've had my I cup fuck. of coffee no like when i've had my cup of coffee i smoke a cigarette i'm ready to start the day and i'm like hey good morning how are you doing cool i am doing fantastic like, what i started doing at work was when people asked me hey hey good morning how you doing today i'm like you know what i'm fucking terrible okay <laughs> i feel horrible. like shit i drank 18 beers last night and now i'm here looking at you and it's 7 30 <laughs> like stone cold look on my face and just to, I, and i What's may the not reaction that you yeah, get out i of may people? not actually have drank 18 beers but i have and <laughs> i just i'm looking for the reaction like maybe i'm trying to get a laugh out of you first thing in the morning and then or sometimes over sometimes no it'd probably if you said that to me i'd be like 
I'm sorry you woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning, but <laughs> good morning. I didn't wake anyways. up in the bed this morning. I woke up in my front yard. <laughs> That's the kind of shit I, I like to say to people. I like to shake. I like to uh, rattle your you cage do. a little bit. Yeah, you do. So Jeez. if I, I if I can not, get a reaction, dude, I would not know how to handle you if I worked with you. I'd be like, I am not saying good morning to him ever. <laughs> I am too much. I am way too much sometimes. Dependent on Bruce's alimony and child support, Barbara ran out of money in Florida. Bruce reached out to Rachel and implored that they work out their differences and that she move back in with him in California. Rachel agreed, but on one condition, that her mother came with her. Regardless of their arguments and fights, Rachel was loyal to her mother and didn't want her to become homeless. She knew that as long as she was sober, her and Barbara got along. Rachel knew to avoid her when she started drinking because she became a mother less desired. So this is their opportunity for Bruce and Barbara to rekindle their relationship, right? Yeah. Not right. Oh, no. The booster <laughs> arguments soon resumed like they never left. Rachel soon turned to the bottle herself along with self-mutilation as a release from the mental oh, and no. verbal abuse. Now. In May of 2006, Rachel met a boy named Ian Allen, and they soon began dating. She was 17, he was 21. Also, the relationship between Rachel and Barbara began to improve as they spent that summer working together as extras for movies and TV. Like, I think the most, the most shows they did was like CSI, which oh, is okay. ironic as fuck. No kidding, right? <laughs> the parents accepted the boyfriend as long as they followed some basic you're living under my roof rules. Ian would help out around the house to develop a good standing relationship with Rachel's parents. Rachel's only rule, like, there's only so much information. I read a couple books, watched a couple documentaries. The only rule they ever talked about was she had to be home by 1 o'clock. That's it? Yeah, that's pretty lenient, right? Uh, Completely. I was like... You can do whatever you want to as long as you're home by 1 o'clock. I mean, hell yeah. Okay, so to that point, Rachel had been pregnant. She got pregnant at like 15 and had an abortion oh, or a wow. miscarriage. Either, one or the other, the kid didn't make it. Her mother was completely understanding because her mother had also been a victim of rape and had a, ba a full term, had a baby, but uh -huh. then gave it up for adoption. Uh, so her being in that same situation, you know, young, pregnant. She wasn't raped, though, was she? I don't think uh, Rachel was raped, okay. but Barbara for sure right. was the rape victim. You know, so she she was like the mom, the friend mom kind of okay. thing until she got drunk. And then she fucking cussed you out for some reason. Right. Like the drunk friend you never wanted and also your mom at the same time kind of situation. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's a perfect combo. So as Rachel and Ian's relationship began to develop, Rachel and Barbara's relationship began to diminish. Rachel began to spend more time with Ian, and it infuriated Barbara. Ian and Barbara began to compete for Rachel's attention, love, and basically just all just control of Rachel. Rachel seemed like the type of person from doing my research that she was either a sociopath and she was controlling both of them and they didn't know it, or she was like an introvert who basically played follow the leader. Gotcha. It's one or the other. Saying that this person was a complete sociopath, that's a stretch to me. Because okay, yeah. 
but like I, I still, I still find it difficult to say someone's a sociopath without some doctor saying it. Like, hey, this bitch is a sociopath. Gotcha. You, you need the diagnosis. Yeah, I need, I need some diagnoses and paperwork. Yeah, and some paperwork. As the tension and stress began to runneth over, and the summer came to an end, Rachel began to rebel against her mother. Naturally. Yep. August thirty first. Rachel doesn't come home, which threw Barbara into a panic. She blows up Rachel's cell phone. She doesn't answer, so she goes over to Ian's house to see if she's there. She is, in fact, there. And Barbara drags her ass home, quite literally. In a diary entry, Rachel wrote how, quote-unquote, humiliated she was and how she could have just died right there. So typical teenager. Fucking drama queen. After the 31st incident, Rachel was banned from seeing Ian because that always works. The ban was lifted after a few days and the relationship resumes like clockwork. Mm -hmm. Another diary entry from Rachel said that Barbara was threatening her and Ian on a daily basis. Rachel also wrote that one day Barbara was going to threaten someone one day that she shouldn't and that they would, quote, beat the living shit out of her, unquote. Why would you write something like that down? <laughs> September 8th, Ian requests the 12th and the 13th of September off of work to help his girlfriend move. On the 12th, Ian called a friend named Ryan and asked for a ride home between the hours of 2 and 5 a.m. Ian planned to go to a party and drink in Newport Beach, and he didn't feel safe to drive. Responsible. Yeah. Like the guy already. Like a good friend, he agreed. September 13th, between 3 and 3.30, Ian calls Ryan to cash in on that ride. Soon Ryan realizes that Ian told him to pick him up where he wasn't supposed to be. Like, Ian told him, hey, pick me up on Stone Academy. Okay. And then Ian was on Stone Avenue. Okay. So it was just like, you know, the difference is minuscule. To say the least, but like if you asked me to pick you up on fucking Academy, yeah, and now I got to go back to Stone Avenue. Um, there, there's, there's reason to believe like oh, yeah. s- some shit went down, mm. but like it may not have been what Ryan thought. Like Ryan probably didn't n- know. think anything of it. He was just like, all right, yeah. So, so Ian has to play several calls to Ryan to direct him where he actually is, and when Ryan finally pulls up. Ian and Rachel are actually standing at an intersection in Corona Del Mar, California. Ian navigates Ryan back to Rachel's house. So, I'm, I'm not, I didn't look up how far from point to point, but I'm imagining if you had to get directions, it's probably somewhere you're unfamiliar with. So, oh, yeah, for sure. Like, if I don't know where I'm going and I have a GPS on me on stat, but then, like, after I go, like, once or, I don't know, like, two or three times... I don't need GPS anymore. I'm like, all right, I know where I'm at. So this story takes an extreme hard left from here. Okay. And the only people that know actually, uh, actually know what happened are Rachel and Ian. Fast forward through the drop off. Let's, let's assume they're dropped off. It's great. They have a great night after that. Okay. Next morning, Barbara was not found inside the house. Her body was actually taped inside of a cardboard box and dropped into the Newport Harbor. Oh, dang. She suffered more than 50 stab wounds with at least four different types of knives. 
A butter knife was left protruding from her eye. I'm not sure if it was a left or right, but okay, so it's it a butter to, knife. So it had to be more than four people. And there's four different types of knives, you said? At least four. That's what the autopsy concluded. Goodness, there's like... four different... You know, if you get stabbed with a butter knife, and I stab you with a steak knife... You know, I actually stabbed... They're going to leave different ser- serrated parts. You're going to laugh at this. I've actually stabbed myself in the face with a butter knife. And it's like right here. God like... damn. Oh, shit! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> you got one of those fawn scars. Yeah, I do. Holy shit. No, like my uh, cousin, we had to disassemble, disassemble her trampoline in her backyard. And she thought it would be smart to take butter knives to loosen up the, the ropes. Springs. Yeah, no, the ropes that tied down the springs. Oh, okay. So I'm like trying to like macgyver this thing in there and then all of a sudden i'm trying to like pull out and try to loosen it up and then i'm just like bam right in my face i'm so happy i did not get my eyeball do you know how sucky that would have been yeah i would have been like this my uncle paul had a glass eye so and he'd take it out and just hand it to you and oh. it would scare the living shit out of you oh i yeah, uh, yeah. Ooh. so a butter knife was found left protruding from her eye don't know which eye Regardless, there's a butter knife in your fucking eye. And you got 50 stab wounds. Like, you're done. Yeah, you're done. <laughs> like, you're By dead. the time Newport police got to her, the box had fallen apart and she was discovered floating in the Newport Harbor. The autopsy concluded that Barbara had been stabbed 52 times with a pocket knife, a butter knife, and another type of knife that wasn't recovered from the crime scene. It was established that she was attacked from the front and the back with stab wounds to the torso, back, legs, and face. She had defensive wounds, meaning that she had tried to fight back. Wasn't successful. It was later concluded that the type of injuries that Barbara received are consistent with more than one attacker being involved. So you're right. There's more than one person, but not probably not four. Well, I mean, if there's four different knives. There's four people stabbing you. That's a lot. (laughs) They must have some really, like, pure hatred towards you. I mean, or it could have been. A passion? Or it could have been they had two different knives in each hand. So, like, Akimbo. step, 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 <laughs> step, 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 step. <laughs> Which is terrible. Like, I oh, hate, obviously, I hate yeah. to get in a fight with somebody who's got two knives in the hands because when you have two knives in your hands, you You're can't You're like defend- Edward Scissor hands. Well, you can defend yourself, but, like, depending on the type of knife that you have. Like, let's say I come at you. But I'm putting my arms up. Guns blazing, knives flinging. Yeah, but you're angry at me, and you're just, like, freaking stabbing at me. And the only thing that I could do is just, like, put my arms up to, like, prevent you from stabbing me. That, too. I could run. Yeah, yeah, your your best choice is to run. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Like, someone taught me at an early age, like, if someone has a gun, you can run up on somebody with a gun. Because, guess, bullets only go straight. Right. You can take a knife from here and go this Angle. way. Angle, yeah. So, see, don't I, run up on somebody with a knife. See, I didn't even think about running. Like, to me, like, every time when I think of a fight, I'm thinking of, like, in this, like, secluded area where you can't get out and you're well, just fighting. Well, you know, like, yeah, the Renaissance. Yeah, in high school, I remember, like, circles used to right? envelop yeah, you. Right, yeah, that's exactly and what it's I'm just thinking like, of. Or the Renaissance. Like you said the last episode, fight or flight. When yes. you fucking are in that fight circle... You can't handle no fight. You no. gotta fight now. Yeah. So you gotta freaking 
come up with some like Bruce Lee moves or something. They were able to establish that the butter knife that was left in her eye wasn't what killed her, but several lacerations to the jugular, to the jugular vein and carotid artery with severe blood loss probably killed her within minutes. And it was difficult to, term- to determine how long she had been out in the water. Oh. Yeah, so. So she was drowning. If, if in fact, she had still been alive. I don't think they found water in her lungs. Okay. okay. So. Because that would suck if you're, like, trying to fight for your life and you're drowning and being stabbed at the same time. No, they didn't stab her in the heart. Like, you talking about an underwater stabbing? Like, no. That's, yeah. That's not what happened. They stabbed her in the apartment. Okay. And then drove her out to the harbor. Ah, uh, okay. Or he, or she, or they. Who, who, who knows? knows? Yeah, we don't know right now. When police arrived, no one was inside the home, and there were no signs of forced entry. They looked undisturbed from downstairs, but what did stick out like a sore thumb in an upstairs bedroom, police found a tore-down bed frame with no bed. Well, they also found the usual stuff, too. After spraying leucocrystal violet, which is basically like, oh, fuck, what's the name of that chemical? Uh, it's a chemical they use to spray to find blood. Luminol? I think, I think it's luminol. I honestly don't know. After spraying leucocrystal violet, it lit the room up like a fucking Christmas tree. With, like, how much blood was Blood everywhere? splatter was found on the walls, the carpet, nightstand, headboards, your usual... Worst nightmare. Upon oh, further inspection, shit. blood was also found on windowsills, all down, all up and down the hallway, on the front door of the home, in the kitchen. Damn, well, so she was everywhere. Oh, yeah. Like, they did, they did, they did their job trying to, trying to clean this up, but all they need is a little bit of luminol and it'll light your room up. The silverware in the kitchen matched the butter knife used in the attack, and they also found a box of latex gloves in the kitchen, and upstairs they found a blood-soaked sponge as well as a handprint in blood. So it's likely that the killer tried to clean up after themselves, obviously. Yeah, I mean, shit, you don't want to get caught. The same day, Bruce had been blowing Barbara and Rachel's phone up because he had been away on a business trip in Fresno, California, and had not talked to them in two days. In a rush, he hurried back home and saw that the door was already open and crime scene tape fluttered unsteadily throughout the area. It's a bad time to be Bruce right now. Yes. Because guess who's suspect number one? The husband. Husband always did it. We're talking about an ex-husband living in the same condo with his ex-wife. Red flags? I, I believe so. Red flags, okay. So. He knew the ropes, though. He knew that he would be an immediate suspect, but what police did not expect was his airtight alibi that he was out of town for work. They couldn't find his his fingerprints on anything incriminating, but his reaction to the news kept the suspect candle lit because Bruce's demeanor had, after he heard the news, was cool, calm, and collected. They were like, hey, your wife's dead. He's like, oh, shit, that's fucked up. Well, I mean, he was divorced. He didn't really love her, I guess. I, mean, I think he was doing... Because think about it. Like, <clears throat> he wanted his daughter, Rachel, to move back, but he wasn't... Um, he wasn't... I, I don't know, like, how thrilled he was having his wife... Mo- or his ex-wife move back. Right. 
And then also, too, like with him being out of town, he must have had some really good guys that he hired possibly to finish the job. It just depends on how much hatred he had towards her. If, in fact, that he's involved. If, if he did it, though. So, but, yeah, you do have a good point. Like, maybe it was a outside-inside job. Yeah. But you'll find out later it was yeah. it was neither one of those. Oh, sure. Really? Damn. I thought I was on to something. <laughs> I never I'm, was. I'm glad. I, I like your drawing in the the story though it's yeah. really good i always lost a clue though i could never figure out who killed what with what the with the weapon in what room it's usually the mr or colonel mustard in the library with the candlestick how did you know i played a lot of clue oh i can tell hat goes off to you sir thank you sir <laughs> police soon learned that rachel and egan had roles to play in this murder mystery and had been missing since the discovery of the body. Initially, police were unable to locate Ian or Rachel, and an APB, which is an all-points bulletin, was put out for them in Ian's black Ford F-150 truck. Police searched Ian's home with the consent from his parents, because Ian lived at home. Okay. And they also searched the family computer and discovered that someone had printed directions to Tampa, Florida the day before the murders. Through the home computer, authorities were also able to track Ian's credit card transactions and, and discover that he had just used it at a gas station in Sulphur, Louisiana. Police in Lafayette, the next town over, were alerted and they set up a roadblock on I-10 with a description of Ian's truck. Ian and Rachel were soon apprehended and Detectives Mack and Cartwright fly to question Rachel and inform her that she was under arrest for the murder of her mother. Rachel feeds detectives a story of how she was kidnapped. According to Rachel, she had fallen asleep between the hours of 10 and 11 p.m. on September 12, 2006. She awoke to blood-curdling screams from her mother. She then ran into her mother's room to find Ian on top of her, stabbing repeatedly. When she tried to wrestle Ian off, she was thrown and knocked unconscious. She woke again to the wrong end of a pistol being shoved in her face and commands that she was coming with him. She then had a moment of amnesia only to recall being held up in a hotel called the Starlight Inn bound with duct tape and gag to keep her quiet. Detectives check into this story and the Starlight Inn had no records of them being there at all. So you said just to make sure September 12th, 2006? Mm-hmm. Detectives also questioned Ian's co-workers if they had seen anything out of the ordinary and they replied that they had seen Ian and Rachel throwing away large black trash bags the morning of the murders and also said that Ian looked exhausted. Near Ian's work site, detectives also discovered a burnt-up mattress and a box spring. Remember how the, the bed was missing Yes. from the scene of the crime? Well, they, they're like, hey, there's this <laughs> mattress and box spring here. Let's examine it let's just do our job ian's truck was searched after being recovered uh heading towards lafayette louisiana and investigators found a roll of duct tape a 38 revolver wrapped in a bandana um rachel and <laughs> <laughs> but the, the 38 was stuffed in the driver's side door so but they didn't use a gun did they they just no, used there was yeah no, there, there was, was no all gun knives used. and all knives stick a pin in that we'll come back to that later okay 
When forensics got a hold of everything, the gun was tested positive for Rachel and Ian's DNA. Rachel's DNA was more majorly contributed on the gun than Ian's was. Rachel's DNA was also majorly contributed to the blood-soaked sponge that was found in Barbara's bedroom. Duct tape found in Ian's truck was consistent with the same duct tape that was found used to seal the TV box found in the harbor. After fingerprint analysis was performed on the duct tape from the box, it revealed Rachel's fingerprints. Rachel continued to insist that she was a pawn in Ian's twisted game and that she was held at gunpoint to do his biddings. He forced her to help clean the house, disassemble the bed, and dispose of her mother's body and car. So Rachel told investigators that her mother's belongings, like everything she ever owned, were, were in those black trash bags, and that Ian's plan was to make it look like she had just moved away, just disappeared. Police found footage from the gas station where they tracked Ian's credit card transactions, and the video tells a different story. Rachel can be seen freely roaming around the store, not looking kidnapped. She then approaches her alleged kidnapper in a loving manner, and they embrace each other greatly. Lovely. Seemed like she was really in danger. She seemed like someone who wasn't afraid for her life. I know, I'm just... Oh, yeah. That's what I wrote, so I had to read it. She isn't trying to run. She's not yelling for help. Nothing. On September 17th, 2006, police finally get their hands on Ian to hear his side of the story. He claimed that he was totally responsible and that his intent was to just scare Barbara, but things got out of control. He held a knife to her throat and says that Barbara started screaming for Rachel to help her. Then he slashed her jugular, stabbed her over 50 times, and left the butter knife in her eye. Police believe that Ian was lying to them to protect Rachel. He says to police in an interview that Rachel doesn't need to be locked up and requests that she go back home where her father needs her. It doesn't work like that in police investigations. You can't just be like, hey, they didn't do it. It's cool. Let them go. It doesn't work like that. Not never. Yeah, they need like more evidence. But at least he asked, though. True. I mean, that's, that's considerate. So back in the investigation, police were able to recover over 464 text messages between Ian and Rachel between the 10th and the 13th of September. That's a lot of text messages for three days. I, I, I remember sending that much in a month. Uh, yeah, me too. One text in particular from Rachel to Ian said, we have two options, run or Tuesday. Uh, ah, yeah. <laughs> Zinger. Investigators believe that the word Tuesday was code for murder. Tuesday was also the day that Barbara was murdered. Yep. They also discovered that four hours after the murders, there's no cell phone activity between the two. And then at 628, a call was placed from Rachel to Ian. And an I love you text was sent from Rachel to Ian. Right. Another text from Rachel asked if Ian was in any trouble in which... Ian replied, nope. The unsurmountable evidence against Rachel and Ian was adding up. So two years after their arrest, Rachel is the first up for trial and decided to change her official testimony in court. 
Rachel's story was that they planned to run away, adding that the run or Tuesday was a typo among many typos that existed in the text logs that was seized and that she meant to say run on Tuesday. Sure. Okay, we'll go with that. They would wait until Barbara was asleep the night of the 12th, then Rachel would call Ian to come and get her and they would leave. Unbeknownst to Rachel, Ian snuck into the house and met Rachel at her bedroom door. Waking Barbara in the commotion, she immediately questions Ian and threatens to call the police for Ian trying to kidnap his daughter. Her daughter, I'm sorry. Ian rushes behind her and in a struggle ensues. It is then that Rachel says Ian began to stab her mother to death with several different knives from the kitchen, from his pocket, you know, whatever. Right. She tries to stop him, but Ian pushes her away, and somehow he didn't put a scratch on Rachel. So if someone's stabbing somebody and you're trying to stop them, don't you think you would catch a knife at some point? Like, by, by total accident. Yeah, I mean... I, a scratch. For as far as they stabbed the person so many times, you gotta be catching that. At least one. Rachel At least. Was, Rachel didn't catch any. So, there's that. When asked in court by the prosecutor, Sonia Baleste, she asked how she knew, how Rachel knew her mom was dead. Rachel replied, quote, because she stopped moving. Leste also pointed out that she had multiple opportunities to alert someone at the two motels that they had stayed in and was verified by police. She also presented to the jury that there were any phone calls to her father or authorities from Ian's phone and she had several opportunities to call somebody after the fact. Yep. Rachel's story continues that after the murder, Ian ordered her at gunpoint to help clean up, help burn the blood-soaked mattress and box spring down the street from his work site, and get rid of the car and her mother's body. They both lied to police the first time because Ian didn't want her to get roped into being a suspect, so they cooked up this kidnapping story. During Ian's trial, they had two separate trials. Oh, okay. So, during Ian's trial, he changed his initial confession as well. Ian's story is that Rachel was the mastermind and that she had sealed her mother's fate by stabbing her while he did all the watching. With no actual physical evidence pointing at Rachel, just, just really, really bad text messages, diary entries, eyewitnesses seeing the couple throwing their mother's stuff away, and it being 100% certain that she was in the room at the scene of the crime while her mother was being murdered it's you know she's gonna she's gonna catch him so what were the do you know what the diary entries were outside of the ones that i read no i wish i could get a copy of someone's diary after the fact but for lack of you know my not being a forensic anything right i can't really get those okay also, the judge noted how Rachel's lack of emotion went throughout the trial. Like, I watched pieces and parts of the trial. Rachel didn't give no fucks. 
As a matter of fact, when she was sentenced, she had like box braids. Like she had some girl braiding her hair in jail. So she was just like oh, soaking yeah, she, it up, enjoying oh, yeah. she, it. Like it was a vacation. She probably, for her. she probably told somebody in jail, kind of thing. But that's that's neither here nor there. Right. No one on her defense team thought that she would get a first degree murder charge. So like maybe she was like. I mean, like, hey, there's, there's no way I'm going to get first-degree murder. I didn't do it. You know, I'm just you know, in here biding my time until... So, back to what you were saying before about her having, like, split personalities or being a sociopath, like, after hearing the story, like, what do you think? Like, do you think that... She could definitely have um borderline personality disorder. Right. As far as being a sociopath, I mean, that's a little bit of everybody. To some to, to some an extent. extent, yeah. I mean, if you have a Facebook, you're kind of a sociopath. If you if you take selfies, you're kind of a sociopath. You're obsessed with yourself. That's like narcissism. What if you're obsessed with like reading your post over and over again? You could just have obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay, that could be me then. Yeah, you might be OCD. I am because sometimes I like when I write something, I'll post it and then I'll go back and like edit it. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely obsessive compulsive. Oh, okay. October 9th of 2008, after three days of deliberations, the jury came to a verdict that Rachel Mullinex, age 19, would be charged with first degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life. Her first parole hearing will be in 2030 and she'll be 41 years old. Oh, damn. Okay, so a uh, quick question. So this happened in 2006, so mm-hmm. it took them two years later mm-hmm. to trial this? Right. W- have they been in jail since yeah, then? Yeah, they were in jail the entire time. Just well, I mean, waiting for imagine, them? Imagine, like, when you're in Is jail. Is there a lot of cases going on? That's why it took it forever? Well, they're in California, so I'd naturally assume so. Um, I mean, I don't know what that means, like, they're in California. Well, so because it's I'd, a big state, or? It depends on the district, I think. But okay, when you're in jail waiting, awaiting trial, sometimes you'll get like those two years that they served. They'll take it off. Yeah, you get okay. time served. For okay, it. okay. I never knew that. I, I wasn't really sure. Okay. Ian was also convicted of first degree murder and was sentenced to 25 years to life as well. After it was all said and done, Ian confessed to police what they already knew. Rachel Mullenix had everything to do with the murder of her mother. So, I'll post all the sources I've got to, you know, from writing this episode in the show notes. There, it, there isn't a ton of sources. I like I looked it up on Murderpedia. Like that's a great source. If I tell you about a case we're about to do, and you want just like a brief overview of the person, yeah, look at it on Murderpedia. Okay, it's, like think of Wikipedia. And then put murder in front of it. Okay, all right. Um, There was another video or another documentary on CBS that I watched. And I also read a book. Okay. So all the sources will be cited in the show notes. So that's the story of Rachel Mullenix. Nobody really just... The only people that know what happened are her and Ian. So... Who do you think? I think it was both. I think so, too. I mean, for you to have, what, was it 436 text messages back and forth? Yeah, 464. 64, excuse me. 
I mean, that's... They had to be both in on it. And then they say, I love you to each other. Yeah, no. Yeah, they, they were both That's like Bonnie and Clyde right there. Both guilty as fuck. Absolutely. If you like the show, uh, check us out on Instagram at Blood and Firewater Podcast. Twitter at BFW Pod Squad. Um, Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate oh, it. No problem. Uh, you, you are definitely, I think, next up again. To be honest with you. I think Brandy... Brandy is gone. Gone? Gone, gone. Did you kill her? Find out next episode <laughs> of Blood and Firewater Podcast. Stay alert and stay alive.